if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 John. And if you're new to the Bible, just go to the very end and turn left, and you're going to run right into it. 1 John chapter 4. Uh, let me begin by reading aloud our passage for today. 1 John 4, 7 through the end of chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. It has been nearly a year since COVID-19 changed the world, and whether you live in Seattle or Shanghai uh, or here in Atlanta, uh, the virus has affected you one way or another. And for most of us, the virus has driven us somewhat further apart. Even before 2020, social isolation and depression were growing concerns for Americans. The number of us living alone has been steadily increasing for decades, reaching over a quarter of all households by 2019. Which means when the world was locked down in March of 2020, nearly 36 million Americans were already living alone on a day-to-day -day basis. And for months now, the number and size of our social gatherings has been minimized we have to navigate not simply how comfortable we are to meet up and hug one another, but how comfortable those we might like to hug are with us, in fact, wrapping or not wrapping our arms around them. And the distance between people is taking a toll. 
Scientists call it the silent pandemic. Social isolation and loneliness produces an increased likelihood of dementia, heart disease, stroke, depression, and suicide, which was already skyrocketing prior to 2020. So back in 1966, Paul McCartney and the Beatles sang all the lonely people in Eleanor Rigby, and in 2021, there are even more lonely people around today. And our generation, I, I say all that to say our generation, I can't say more than any other generation, but our generation, certainly more than any other time in our own lifetime, we are in desperate need of the wisdom found in 1 John. I really do believe this is a unique letter for our day. We need to hear, especially what we just heard in our passage that God built us for community. He built us to be a community of people who know what it is to not be isolated from one another, to love one another, to care for one another. And that community of love can only be rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so all of that is in our passage today. If I could distill it into one sentence, uh, it would be this. John teaches us that the God who is love shows love through the cross of Christ, creating a people who do love. The God who is love shows love through the cross of Christ, creating a people who do love. All right, and that sentence is actually the outline of the sermon. So here we go, point number one, the God who is love. The God who is love. Now we have all heard that statement, God is love. And though that idea is on every page of the Bible, those exact words, God is love, are found only here in our passage where they are found twice. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And if you look at verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. God is love. Those are remarkable words. We've heard them so often, uh, perhaps uh, uh, applied in, in ways that the Holy Spirit did not intend them to be applied, but they're remarkable words. God is love. And they're especially remarkable in light of the way our society has so successfully managed to depersonalize love. Our culture has made love entirely subjective. Love is simply what we desire, our society says, absent any reference to God who made us. So think of statements like, love wants what love wants or love wins, or love is love. Right? These, these phrases have captured not just the bumper stickers of our country, but the imagination of our country. They tug at the heartstrings of everyone who hears them. But, but hear me, they lack the, the personal and transcendent truth of, God, of, of John's assertion 
that, that God is love. And we cannot understand the love that we're to give unless we have some idea of what God is love actually means. The American theologian Jonathan Edwards defined love as, and I quote, that disposition or affection whereby one is dear to another. That disposition or affection whereby one is dear to another. Right? Something dear is precious or valuable or treasured. So you say to a loved one, my dear, or dearie, right? It's a, it's a, no, who says dearie now? I get that. But it's a, it's a term of affection. When we say that God is love, we affirm that this has always been the case, right? God has always been love. Before you and I were ever born, before we could be dear to anyone, God existed, and he was love, and he is love, and he will always be love, and his love does not depend upon you, nor does it depend upon me, and if this is true, if God is eternal, existing alone before any of us or anything else was made, if he is eternal, and if he is love, then that means that God has always been dear to himself. Love must have an object, and that means God has always been dear to himself, and I know that sounds a little funny. That sounds a little strange. But it's not strange when you realize that God is triune. He is, which is a fancy way of saying, he's three in one, and one in three. And this is a distinctly Christian way of, of understanding God, the God who has always been love is the God who has always been triune. And he has never been lonely because he has never been alone. The three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have always been together and they are one and they have existed in perfect and holy and happy and loving community. They, they don't get in fights. They don't annoy one another. Right? Find the, the best church on planet Earth, and it is filled with people who annoy one another. Not so the holy, happy community who is God. So now, with that in mind, can you guess what it means to say God is love? It means that there is a genuine affection from the Father toward the Son. So think about that day that Jesus received baptism. Do you remember what the Father said? Matthew 3, 17, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hey, this is Jesus. He's my Son and He's dear to me. It means there's a genuine affection from the Father toward the Son. It means there's a genuine affection from the Son to the Father. It means that the Father is dear to the Son. Think of Jesus' words before He headed off to the cross. John 14, 31, Jesus said, I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Right? I do, I obey my Father so that the world will know that, that I love the Father more than anyone else. I'm going to obey Him. And then the Spirit has a unique role to play. It's a bit more mysterious, at least to me. The Spirit seems to be the one who makes the love between the Father and the Son known. So. 
what do you know? When Jesus receives baptism and the Father says, this is my beloved Son, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus as a dove. Uh, we know the Son obeyed the Father because the Spirit has revealed the Word of God. So the world knows that Jesus loves the Father because the Spirit of God inspired those words that we might know that. Well, there's much, so much more that you need to know about God, but the truth that he is love is fundamental and it is monumental. God is love, he is perfect, all-satisfying, never-ending, overflowing love. And this is crucial for understanding 1 John chapter 4. There is no other explanation for the cross, which we're going to talk about in a moment, except to say that the Father's love for the Son overflowed into creation, and it's a love that reaches out to sinners like you and me. And this is crucial for our understanding of God. And so I want to... Please understand me, I'm, I'm taking a little bit of step away from the text, recognizing that we're confronted by these unique words, God is love. And even though the majority of ink in our passage is not those three words, I hope we can see how fundamental and foundational those three words are to our passage and to our understanding of who God is and how desperately wrong the vast majority of the world gets this. Knowing God is love is crucial for our understanding of God himself and our understanding of how we are to live in light of him. It is possible for a person to be something other than what he presents. You know that. We can wear masks. We can present ourselves falsely. We can hide our true identity. In recent days, we've heard of a famous Christian leader who wore a mask and deceived others. And it's good to remember in light of that that the church's one foundation is not your favorite pastor or preacher or theologian or evangelist, but the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Praise God for hymns. They stick in our minds, don't they? God, however, does not wear a mask. He never hides or deceives, not ever. He is God. He is love, and he cannot be anything other than love. And you need to understand that. He is love through and through. So if you dig under the service of God as if you could dig under the service of God, you would find more love. If you could read his diary, you would find love. If you would eavesdrop on God's private conversations, you would see love. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Always merciful, always compassionate, kind, tender, always exalting. God is always exalting his triune name in the, throughout the universe, through all of his perfect actions. God is and always will be love. And because God is love, you can trust him. He will never ask you to do anything that contradicts his character. And his character is one of love. He will never ask you to do anything that undermines who he is. In light of the fact that love wins is a phrase used 
to defend gender fluidity. If you don't know what I'm talking about, my guess is eventually you will. Let me give you one very specific example of how the truth, God is love, can guard our hearts and help us to live in a world where love is increasingly and drastically misunderstood and misapplied. Biologically, we are either male or female. You are either a man or a woman. And there are times when some of us feel confused about this. For various reasons, we don't feel as masculine or as feminine as we think we should feel. There are a lot of different reasons, some reasons from outside of us, some reasons from inside of us. There's a lot of different reasons why an individual may genuinely feel confused about who he is or about who she is. And depending on the depth of those feelings, we may grow discouraged, angry, bitter. And many would say that if you're feeling like that, you should lean into that confusion. You shouldn't embrace that confusion. They would say, love is love, after all. Lean into your confusion and love whom you want, when you want, in any way you want. Because certainly your feelings can't be misguided. Your feelings must be the ultimate truth. What do you have if not how you feel when you're alone? I recognize that I'm preaching a sermon to you, but you recognize that people are hearing sermons all day long, every day of the week, just not from pastors. They say love is love, it's your body, you can think about it or use it however you want. You can choose your sex, you can choose your gender, gender. you can choose your mate. Love wins, love is love, love wants what love wants, but God says, I am love. That's the, that's the, the Christian response. God says, I am love. God says you're not a mistake. God says, I know some days are hard for you. I, I want you to trust me. Don't lean into the confusion that you feel about who you are, but lean into my character. I am good. I'm holy. I'm love. I gave you your body. I gave you your gender. I've given them to you for your good. And when you're struggling, when you feel confused, come to me. Depend on me. Don't buy into the marketing campaigns on the bumper stickers that depersonalize love and seek to separate love from my identity, from my triunity, from my eternality. Don't buy into it. Love is personal. I am love, God says to the person struggling to understand who he is and who she is. And God says, lean into me. You can trust me. And why can you trust me? Most fundamentally, because I am love. So often we look at God through the lens of how we feel. Right? We let how we feel dictate what we think about who God is and how we should relate to other people. But, but God tells us to look at our feelings through the lens of himself, 
Look at your feelings through the lens of God. Let God, who is not a tyrant or a monster, but who is love, let him dictate how you should feel and how you should think and how you should act in a world that is spiraling away from him. God is love. So much more I would love to say about that. But we must move on. So, so far, we've clearly been looking at our passage from about 30,000 feet. So let's drop, hold on, let's drop down to 3,000 feet. The God who is love, second, shows love through the cross. The God who is love shows love through the cross. So I want you to picture an empty balloon that you have slipped onto a kitchen faucet. And with one hand, you're, you're pinching the neck of that balloon tightly around the kitchen faucet. And with the other hand, you are opening it up just a trickle. And the balloon is slowly beginning to fill. And if you manage to keep your hand tightly around the neck of that balloon with the water remaining on, eventually that balloon will pop. It will explode. God's love is like water, collecting and filling up until that balloon finally explodes at the cross of Christ. Look, if you would, at 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So in verse 9, John says the love of God was made manifest among us. The, the balloon of God's love popped at Calvary for the whole world to see so that we could understand the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father and even their love for us. The Father sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Right? But to live through him, he had to die for us. God made his love manifest. He revealed it. He showed it through the cross. The emphasis in verse 10 is clearly not on our love for God, but on God's love for us. And this is where John uses that word, propitiation. If you, if you want to get people to want to come and hear you preach, title your sermon, Jesus is the propitiation. Atlantans will knock down the door to come and hear that sermon for sure. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Now, we don't really use that word, so let me explain it. To do that, I got to back up, right? In love, God made you. He made you to bear his image. He made you to enjoy his love. He made you to love others. And we all fail at this. We fail badly at this. Uh, friends, if you're new to Mount Vernon, it's why we're just constantly starting our times together with a confession of sin. Some of you come and think, well, this is a downer. Well, so are you, you know? I mean, you know what you're supposed to do. You don't do it. And we just, we're honest about it. You know, and that's, that's the difference. We all fail 
No one in this room is the man, woman, or child that he ought to be. We're all rebellious. We're all unkind and ungodly. And, and just look at the world we live in. And I prayed this morning for the politicians and the, the Hollywood execs. But really, guys, I mean, it's not sort of just them. You know, them is us. I mean, we're part of the problem with the way the world is. Unless you're perfect, in which case, again, you should be preaching. We're part of the problem. Sin is a universal condition. We're not as bad as we could possibly be. But none of us is good. But God is good. And I've talked about his love, but let's not forget his holiness. God is without sin. He's perfect. He's light. And, and our sin is an affront. It's a scandal to God's holiness. And because God is holy, we deserve God's wrath, which is to say we deserve his, we deserve his anger outleashed against us, his punishment. Remember, uh, for those of you who know what Isaiah cried out when he saw something of the glory of the Lord. Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Right? It sounds like very old Bible language, doesn't it? But it, but it really shouldn't. It's sort of our, our, our prayers of confession are basically a corporate, Woe is us. We are a church of unclean lips. You know, we need the Lord. We need you. We need forgiveness. Isaiah said this because God is holy. So, yes, God is holy, and we deserve judgment, but God is love, and because of his love, the Father sent his only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus is God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life, but he came to die. And here's where propitiation comes in. He came to die in our place. Right? A, a propitiation is simply someone or something that absorbs God's wrath for someone else. That's all a propitiation is. It's a fancy word. It's kind of fun to say, propitiation. Probably shouldn't say it in COVID-19 world, but um, propitiation. God the Father sent his only son to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He saved us by offering himself up as a sacrifice, a sacrifice that accomplished something, that did something, that satisfied God's wrath for the person who would receive all the blessings of that propitiation, of that sacrifice, for the sins really of anyone who would ever turn and, and trust in him. But you may be thinking, well, how could it be loving for God the Father to send his son, his only son, to suffer and, and die? I mean, good for me, but not so good for Jesus. So how can, how can God be love? And, and all I can say to you is that the Father is dear to the Son and has always been dear to the Son. The Son is dear to the Father and has always been dear to the Father. The Holy Spirit is at work revealing their love. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they love the plan of salvation. Jesus wasn't forced to die for you, Christian. He did it willingly. He really, he rejoiced not in death, but he rejoiced in obedience to his Father. Because he knew that for all time and through all eternity, humanity would know how deeply he loves his father. He obeys all the commands of his father, even the command to suffer and die 
because he loves his Father, and secondarily, because he loves us. God is love. And this is really the central theme of the Bible. Really, John in 1 John chapter 4, and these verses in particular, is tapping right into the central theme of all the Bible. The Bible is a book of God's love. It's a book of God's love manifest on the cross. And that's something you see in the Old Testament, and it's something you see in the New Testament. It's something you see in Genesis chapter 22, where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And Abraham knows that God is love, and that God would never ask him to do something that compromises God's own character, but Abraham also knows that Isaac is his hope for the future. Isaac is his hope for the nation that God promised to make through Abraham. And so God was testing Abraham, and Abraham believed God. Abraham believed that even if Isaac dies, God would surely raise him from the dead in order to keep his promise to make a people from Abraham through Isaac. But before Isaac died, God provided a ram in the thicket. And that ram died in the place of Isaac, in the land of Moriah, on Mount Moriah, where eventually the temple of the Lord would be built, where eventually lambs would be sacrificed for the people to propitiate the wrath of God for the nation of Israel. Those lambs sacrificed right where that ram in the thicket was sacrificed would be a sacrifice in the place of God's people, satisfying God's wrath for the moment. And then one day, many years later, John the Baptist is walking around and he sees at a distance a man, his cousin, whose name is Jesus. And John the Baptist sees Jesus and he cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God! who comes to take away the sins of the world. Of the world. Jesus is the lamb. He is the sacrifice. He is the propitiation. But unlike Isaac's sacrifice, unlike the lamb sacrificed in Old Testament history at the temple, Jesus did not die just for Israel, but for Jews and Gentiles. For men and women in Madagascar and Malawi and Arkansas and Azerbaijan. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Right? Savior of the world. This is similar to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, where we're told Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is not the Savior of just one nation. He is the Savior of all nations. But what John wants you to see and appreciate and feel more than anything else is that this saving work of Jesus, this cross work of Jesus, this propitiatory work of Jesus is because of God's extraordinary love. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, and with that confession that Jesus is the Son of God, 
You need to think of all Jesus' work as the Son of God, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his amazing resurrection. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love, the love that God has for us. And there it is again. God is love. Now, maybe, just maybe, you don't think this is very special. After all, you might be thinking, there are lots of people who give of themselves for others. I know lots of people, you might say, who would give of their life for somebody else. I know moms and dads who would gladly switch places with their sick children if they could. Uh, I know police who put their lives on the line for their communities. I know soldiers who put their life on the line for their country. Uh, we've been thinking for a year about healthcare professionals who are getting right in front of the virus to treat people with COVID-19, right? The world is, is filled with heroes. So why is it so extraordinary that God shows his love for us at the cross in light of the fact that we have a whole world filled with heroes? Well, the answer is here. I do think it's more succinctly stated in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Listen to what Paul says in answer to the question, is Jesus' love for us at the cross really that extraordinary? Paul writes, for while we, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, right? One, one will scarcely die for, in other words, okay, I'll scarcely die for a righteous person. I mean, I'm, uh, it's hard. He says, for a good person, one would dare even to die. Okay, if you're good, and I think your presence on planet Earth is maybe better than my presence, well, then maybe I'd give myself for you. But Paul says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Which is the Bible's way of saying, when there is nothing, nothing good in you or of you, and that's the key difference. The Son of God died for the unlovable. You will never appreciate the depth of God's love for you until you realize the depth of your sin against him. So, if you'll excuse me from borrowing from the Marvel Universe, Jesus is an Iron Man dying for Captain America and a brave world united against Thanos and his minions. Jesus died to redeem Thanos and his minions. Jesus came for sinners. Listen to how the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, begins. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Again, not a word we use, a wretch but a theologically accurate description of our state prior to the work, the loving work of God in our lives. If you are a Christian, you were a wretch before God made you his treasure. You were unlovely until God loved you. You were a sinner until God saved you to make you, though still sinful, a saint. And this love that saves you changes everything. Look at verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, 
Because as he is, so also are we in this world. In other words, as he is loving for all time, so also are we now in Christ loving in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. When you believe Jesus is your propitiation, the one who absorbed the wrath of God for you, the wrath of God you deserved, when you believe the Father loved you enough to give up what was most precious to him, dearest to him, his only son, when you believe this, you don't need to be afraid of death. There is no punishment awaiting for you upon your death. There, no rebuke is waiting for you. No scolding. Right? Death for the Christian is a warm welcome into the presence of a holy and loving God. You come to him like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, dressed in white linen. No rebuke for you. Parents, a bit of an aside here, but this ought to inform how you discipline your children. Yes, your child needs to be disciplined and punished at times, and he won't like it. But your discipline must be done in love, gently, warmly, tenderly, carefully. He ought to know that you are disciplining him because you love him, because you are for him, not because you're annoyed or defensive or frustrated. Perfect love casts out fear. Now, brothers and sisters, more to the point, you shouldn't fear death. Brothers and sisters, you shouldn't fear death. All of us could die at any time. But for some of us, death seems closer. You may be older in years. You may be suffering with a severe illness. Let these words sink in. Perfect love casts out fear. The love of God that ordained the cross of God means you don't need to fear the judgment of God. Forty years ago, last Friday, London pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones sat in his bed, unable to speak, old and sick, and he scribbled down a final note for his family and friends to read. He wrote this, Don't pray for healing. Don't hold me back from glory. And then the Lord took him home. May we all face death with such peace, the kind of peace that comes from believing perfect love casts out fear. And this brings us to our final point. We drop now down to 300 feet. The God who is love shows love through the cross. Third, creating a people who do love. Creating a people who do love. First John, as you should know already, gives us three clear tests to discern a true Christian. First, sound doctrine. Second, right living. Third, brotherly love. And each test must be passed. You can't say, I like the love part, but that whole orthodoxy thing, who has time for that? Can't do that. You know, you got to pass each test. Sound doctrine, right living, brotherly love. None are optional. Each is important. But the distinguishing mark 
of a Christian is that he loves others. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge but have not love, I am nothing. In other words, if you are the best, soundest, most orthodox, most charismatic with a little c speaker about the Bible, but you don't love the church, Paul says, you're nothing. If you don't have love when you're teaching Sunday school, if you don't have love when you are helping out those little explorers that we prayed about this morning, you're nothing. If you don't have love, he says, all of your, all of your wisdom, all of your knowledge, it's, well, you're nothing. Nothing without love. In verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Right? That's right living. Right? You can volunteer every day at Good Sam or at the Sandy Springs Mission. You can give of yourself. You can give away all you have. You can be generous. You can hold loosely to everything you have. But if you have not love, Paul says you gain nothing. If your righteous life isn't matched by a loving heart, Paul says it's of no good to you. Brothers and sisters, it's not enough to know God is love. It's not enough to embrace the Jesus of the cross. If he is your God and you've been changed by him, you must love others. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Very end of the passage, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, let's be really clear about something. Love is a requirement for the Christian. It's a requirement. Verse 21 is clear. And this commandment, this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Like, what if it was May? Whoever loves God may love his brother. Ah, May. I like May. You know, when I get around to it. Not a May. It's a must. It's a requirement. It's a command. And in fact, John is really repeating the command that Jesus gave in John 15, 12, where he basically said the exact same thing. You know, to his disciples, lay down your lives for your brothers. Love them. But don't miss John's overarching point here. Love is more than required of the Christian. It is inevitable for the Christian. It's inevitable. If God is love, and if he has shown you his love on the cross, and if through that cross God is your God, then you will love. It's inevitable. If I go to the gym and lift weights every day for two hours, I will change. I will be what they call buff. I'll grow bigger. The difference here is that the love that God shows us is not a love we work out for. It's a love that he gives. The love we are called to show is, theologically speaking, not the result of our 
working out, but God's working in, working in us. God takes the initiative. We see it in verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. We see it in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. So I'm not trying to take anything away from the efforts you and I must make to love others. Love is a command, but I'm wanting you to see that at an even deeper level, love is a gift, a gift that comes from God who first loved us. We don't, this is gonna trip some of you up. And if that's you, I'll be at the door at the end of the service. Uh, you can track me down. We don't follow God so we can get saved. We get saved so we can follow God. We don't love God so he'll love us. God loved us so we could love him and so we could love others. Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. You don't, there are, other, there are other parts of scripture where we're told to crucify ourselves, but not here, not in Galatians 2.20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ loved us first by giving himself for us on the cross. He crucified us with him, killing our old self so we could walk in newness of life, so we could love. It's the day of, of long and difficult words, so let me add another word. We've had propitiation. Our lives are to be cruciform. C-R-U-C-I-F-O-R-M. Cruciform. Cruce comes from the word that means crux or cross. Form means form or shape. Our lives are to be shaped by the cross. Our love toward others is to be shaped, formed by the cross, cruciform. Is this how you post on Facebook or Twitter? Are your words toward others, your words about others, saturated with the love of Christ and shaped by the cross? Your word to your children, your word to your husband, your word to your wife, your words to your parents, are they cruciform? Matthew 5.43, Jesus says you're to love your enemies. Are you careful to speak lovingly about your boss, your employees, your family, your friends, your, your political enemies? Your brothers and sisters at Mount Vernon, are your words cruciform? Is this how you give of your time and your money? Have you been shaped by the love of God shown in the cross of Christ? God is creating a cruciform people, a people who love. As I mentioned last week, John's unique contribution to this topic of love is the attention he gives to our need to love those within the body of Christ, within the church family. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. One another. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Verse 20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Verse 21, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Why does John focus so much attention 
on the love that we're to have for one another in the church. I mean, isn't the bigger problem what's going on outside these church walls? Well, it could reflect the situation that John is writing in and through. I think John was writing to the church in Ephesus, a church that had recently undergone a split as many unsound teachers went off to start their own church. And if you've ever been part of a church split, you know that it causes lots of controversy and pain. And maybe it's in the midst of that that John is providing a word in season, a good word, a reminder. Friends who are here, who are staying, remember, yes, sound doctrine, right living, brotherly love. Maybe that's it. It could also be the case that John is simply being faithful to Jesus. Like, look, Jesus is the one who said, this is how the world will know that we are his disciples by the love we have for one another. Jesus said we're to love our enemies. He didn't explicitly say, this is how the world will know that we are Christ's disciples by the love you have for your enemy. He said they're going to know it by the love you have for one another. So John the Apostle is simply faithfully presenting the teaching of his master. I wonder if it's also true that Jesus knew how hard it could be to love those closest to you. Like, I know it's hard to overlook, like, an enemy who does something wrong to you, and you've got to overlook that, and that's super hard. Uh, I mean, really hard. There is a certain difficulty of loving the same people week, out, week in and week out for 25 years, and I'm not talking about anybody in this room, right, but just people who annoy you, people that you love but don't like, people who, when you're around, they, you just feel you know, you feel kind of beaten down for whatever reason, and yet, like, God, you saved them. I know I've got to love them, and I don't want anyone to hear me thinking like that, but I don't know what to say. Like, there is a unique difficulty to loving week in, week out, year in, year out. Welcome to the local church. To love one another is a command we cannot ignore. Now, uh, many of you are members of Mount Vernon, which means you joined the church. Uh, you, figuratively speaking, raised your hand and said, hey, I want to be accountable to you, and I want you to be accountable to me. You identified yourself as someone who wants to be a part of the church family, and you submitted your life to the family in the sense of saying, please get to know me, you know, talk to me, hear me share the gospel, you know, let me tell you about my life. I want you to know me. I want us to know one another. That is uh, raising your hand. Church membership is actually a biblical word. Word. It's from member. We are members of one body. So church membership is actually a very biblical word. But the way we practice membership is simply a formal way of putting our hands and our feet to love. That's all membership is. When this church was founded in 1959, we adopted a church covenant. A covenant is a, a statement that describes how we agree to live as believers. A covenant covers the, the right living and brotherly love portion of the two tests we find in 1 John. What does it mean to live rightly? What does brotherly love look like? And this is something that Baptist churches have been doing since the 1500s. A church is certainly doing it long before that, but this idea of a church covenant, in particular something Baptist churches have been doing for centuries. A covenant is just a promise 
Uh, a church covenant is just a set of promises that we make to one another, to God, certainly, but to one another. We have unique obligations to the brothers and sisters who are part of our church family. If you would, if you're comfortable doing this, grab a hymnal and turn to the front cover, and there you will find a copy of Mount Vernon Baptist Church's church covenant. And I want you to look at the first promise that we make to one another. It's the first sentence of the second paragraph, and I don't think there's any accident that it begins this way. We determine, therefore, by the grace of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's 1 John. That is church membership in a nutshell. Over the years, I've run into genuine believers who struggle with this idea of church membership. They wonder, why do they have to officially join a church? Isn't it enough to show up? And when I look at 1 John, and especially our passage, I, I see that this love and commitment go hand in hand. Jesus didn't just say, hey, I love you. No, he laid down his life for us. And if we love one another, we just won't say, hey, I love you when you're agreeable, or I love you just when you're nice to me, or I love you when it's convenient for me. No, I will lay down my life for you. One way we do this is by raising our hands and committing to be a church family together. We need this. Everyone needs this. It's been a rough year for planet Earth. And I'm not looking forward to reading statistics about rising drug addiction, more depression, increased loneliness, suicide. God made us to be in community. And that's true for every man and woman and child on the planet. We need to be together. He made us, he made us as a people who long for a home, who long for a family. And the church ought to be home for believers. It doesn't have to be this church, but local churches ought to be home for believers. Mount Vernon, by God's grace, we are a people who do love. We don't do it perfectly, but we keep at it, not simply because we have to, and not simply because we know deep down that it's the right thing to do. We love because the God who is love has shown his love through the cross of Christ to make us a people who do love. It's required, yes, but it's inevitable. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for the truths found in 1 John, in this passage, the truth that you are love, eternal, perfect, triune, glorious love. You have made manifest your love through the cross of Christ that saved sinners like us. Christ propitiated your wrath that you might call us your friend and adopt us as your children into your family. And having been saved through the cross of Christ, we are now as Christ is, those who do love. We pray that we would never get tired 
of professing all of that to be true, and that we would learn to greater degrees, year after year, what it looks like to love one another. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.